Um, he had the kind of job where you go in early and get off early in the afternoon, so I knew he'd be home. So I called him, hey, are you home? Yes. Great, I need you to come run an errand with me. I'll pick you up in 10 minutes. Okay. He, a man in his 50s, mind you, hopped in the truck and said, where are we going? And I put it in reverse first, was out of the driveway before answering, I've got an errand in Lawrenceville. Do you have your driver's license? Yes. Do I need it? Maybe. I knew he wouldn't go if I told him where we were going. And so as we drove 10 minutes down the road and he asked a few more times, somehow I managed to answer him without answering him. It was evasive. It was excellent. Um, then we pulled into the parking lot, and at that moment, he said, what are we doing? And I said, we're getting your car. His car had been at the shop for over a year because he didn't have the money to pay the bill and pick it up. We, we had planned it for weeks. One night at a base group that he didn't attend, we hatched a plan. Hey, can you find out how much he owes? Hey, can you no negotiate it down? All right. $2,200, and then $500 from here, $50 from there, a beautiful, I don't have much, but I want to help, $20 from there, and so on, and we had the full amount. I had called it in the day before it was paid for. It was planned, it was paid for, and all that was left for me on that day was the actual carrying out, the completion, the intersection of our plan and our paid-for blessing and actually making our friend a partaker of that. We're getting your car. No, you can't do that. And then I parked and I said, we already did and just started walking toward the mechanic's office, hoping that that would end the debate, and it mostly did. Except for a brief moment when coming out of the office, his keys in his hand, he resurfaced. He said, I can't accept this. He said, you accept that Jesus died on the cross in your place in order to forgive you your sins. He said, yes. I said, great, then this is nothing. Not my line, by the way. I'm not clever. I just read books. Um, so, so what am I supposed to do now, he says. I don't know, man. Probably just get in your car and drive home. And I share that story to say this morning, join a base group. No, uh, I, I share that so that we might get a little feeble picture in our minds of this order that we've been talking about and then understand what we mean when we say applied by the Spirit. Already we've covered the, this, how this great salvation has been planned. Already we've covered how this great salvation has been accomplished in God the Son. Today we turn to how this great salvation is actually applied to us, thereby making us actual partakers of it. Let's read in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, as we do every week, we thank you for your word as a precious gift to us. Help us now to submit under your word and not to sit in judgment over it. Encourage us that need to be encouraged. Comfort us that need to be comforted. Convict us that need to be convicted. Father, if your word is what it claims to be and we confess that it is, and if your spirit is active among us and we confess that he is, then you can change us even now. Father, I pray that you would be here and do that work, Lord, for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In previous weeks, we saw how verse 3 provided the context for this section as a whole. For one, the whole section that we are dealing with is an outburst of praise to God for the blessings he has poured out on us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So as we come to our section, we are in an outburst of praise still. Second, we saw how this section has a Trinitarian outline. So we saw two weeks ago how our salvation was planned by the Father before the foundations of the world. Last week, Pastor Matt walked us through how this salvation has been accomplished by the Son. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Today, we turn to the work of the Holy Spirit in applying that salvation to us. Moreover, we've shown every week how this passage has repeated over and over again the phrase in him or in the beloved or in Christ to make clear that all the blessings of the Spirit come to us by our union with Christ. This continues in our passage today as it opens up in him. The first thing we will note this morning is that salvation comes from hearing and believing the gospel. At this point, Paul turns from the broader pronouns of we, us, and turns to the pointed, personal, and pastoral pronouns of you, but a plural you, so y'all. He does this to emphasize this gift in a way that is personal and pastoral. He says, this is yours. If you're here today and a believer in Christ, then hear God saying to you through his word, pointedly, personally, pastorally, be encouraged. This is yours. Paul's grammar here is a little odd, and the ESV has tried to repair that a little bit for you. If you have the New King James or the King James, they both keep the structure in place. It's almost as if Paul starts the sentence, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then he stops and he restarts his sentence, rewording the same thing another way. 
In him you also, when you believed, and it's on the screen for you there, the passage has one primary verb, you were sealed, and the promised Holy, with the promised Holy Spirit, and then it has other verbs, you heard and you believed, serving as adverbs to set up that main verb. So, why point this out? Is it just because I'm a grammar nerd? No, that's true, but not just because of that. Is it just because talking about Greek makes you sound smart? No. In fact, I'll be honest, I know so little Greek that when I was trying to double check this point here, I had a really hard time going through my Greek Bible before I realized I wasn't even in the right book. So, uh, I do also think that the preacher should seek to explain the text as clearly as possible. Therefore, I only really want to make reference to the original language when it helps to explain something, and I do think this helps us to see something important this morning. Hearing, believing, being sealed are not three sequential steps. Rather, they all occur at the same time. Paul is describing the Christian's conversion as the moment where all of this has occurred. Hearing and believing, then, are different ways of talking about one aspect, and sealing is another way of talking about what's going on, but it's all going on in the same moment. Why is that important? So that we don't mistake even our salvation as something we earn by our decision, but rather we see even our decision as an act of sovereign grace wrought by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Faith is not a quid pro quo whereby we exercise faith in Christ and then we get the Holy Spirit. No, faith is itself a gift of the Holy Spirit. As Ephesians 2 says, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So then, salvation comes from hearing and believing the gospel, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. You, if you're in Christ today, became a Christian by faith in the gospel message. There is nearly nothing more elementary than that, right? Like all of us who are in Christ must know this already or we wouldn't be in Christ. But it's no less profound and we should continue to marvel at it. When we cease marveling at it, we should cease with all other busyness, and we should fight to fan into flames the glowing embers of our affections until they are a roaring flame again. After that, your heart is not stir still stirred up to worship, stirred up with a longing to know Christ more, then I think you have reason to wonder if you've even known Jesus at all. If you look long at the cross, and you say, yeah, 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 I get it, then I think you have reason to wonder whether the scales remain over your eyes, preventing you from seeing it in all its glory. By faith in the gospel, dead men come alive. 
By faith in the gospel, your sin is forgiven. How can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? By a simple faith in the gospel, we who are unrighteous receive as our very own Christ's righteousness. By faith in the gospel, we are brought into God's family. If that ever ceases to be amazing to you, then run quickly to fall on your face before him, begging him to remind you of your helpless state apart from him, and begging him to fill you again with gratitude at his grace. Martin Luther, in his special Luther way, said that this gospel is of such importance that it is something we have to be reminded of over and over. He says, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Church, let us never lose sight of how amazing the gospel is. Let us continue to marvel that we get to be reconciled to God through a simple gospel message. But going further, let us marvel that he brought the gospel to us personally. At one time, you were a sheep outside the fold, and God sent the gospel message to bring you into the fold. By nature, you were a child of wrath like everyone else, but God sent the gospel message to you. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, for you to believe, he sent someone to proclaim the message to you. However it is that he got the good news to you, let us marvel that he did. Whether it was by the blessing of growing up in a Christian home and Christian parents laboring to teach you God's word day in and day out. Whether it was through the public preaching of the word in a church service. Whether it was through the faithful serving of a children's ministry teacher or youth worker or whether it was the faithful witness of a friend holding the gospel message out to you. Whatever means he used in your life, let us be grateful that he is sovereign over the means, the ends, and the means, that by his divine and omnipotent power, he so orchestrates the world that he accomplished his predestined end through some predestined means. If you're here today, and you're not a Christian, let me lay this before you plainly while praying that the Spirit of God would so convict your heart of the message. This gospel of salvation can be summed up in this. God saves sinners. God who created you and who created everything is holy and perfect, and completely deserving of all our worship. But you 
and all the rest of us here have rebelled against our good and perfect creator and sought to go our own way. In doing so, in rebelling against him, our, our, in failing to honor him as God, our mutiny against the creator of the world deserves death. But he's been lavishly kind to us in not striking us down, but forbearing. However, his kindness and his forbearance are there to draw us to repentance. As Romans says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Make no mistake that there will be a time for his kindness, forbearance, and patience to be over. And if you persist in unbelief, and in your rebellion, you will pay your own punishment. But it doesn't have to go that way. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God saves sinners. Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, so that if you would turn, lay down your rebellion, trust in in Christ, and submit to him as Lord, you can be graciously saved through the simple gospel message. If you're here today and you hear this gospel message, then we've set life before you. Will you surrender it all to him or will you choose the way of death while clinging to do things your own way? If you'd like to talk about this further, then talk to the friend that brought you, talk to one of us that have been up front this morning, but we'd love to discuss more. Church, marvel that God saves sinners through the simple gospel message. Marvel that he brought the gospel to you personally. And going even further, let us marvel not that he just got the gospel to us, but he brought the gospel to us in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. As he tells the Thessalonian church, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Church, marvel that God was so gracious to us that he added the conviction of the Spirit and the regeneration of the Spirit to our hearing of the gospel. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Okay, that's a, that's a grace from God. Praise God for the conviction of his spirit. And grace, my fears relieved. Praise him for the faith to trust in grace. In my own life, the gospel came to me many times before it came to me in power and in the Holy Spirit. I even responded many times with outward expressions, praying the prayer, walking an aisle, but still didn't have saving faith. So once at this youth rally and once at this youth conference in Nashville, and by then you could ask me what the gospel was, and I could tell you what the gospel was, and I could explain it to you well. I understood it. You could even ask me if I believed if it was true, and I would have mentally assented, but I was still lost as a ball in high weeds. 
Then July 18th, 2000, I know the date, you don't have to know yours, I was sitting in the evening service of a summer camp in Panama City. I can't even tell you who the speaker was that night, but I remember the weight of conviction that came upon me when he asked what is today a very out-of-fashion question. If you were to walk across that street tonight back to your hotel and get hit by a bus, would you be going to heaven or would you be going to hell? And I knew very clearly in that moment that I personally deserved the wrath of God for my sin. I was pierced, terrified, not for like fear of actually getting hit by a bus, but for fear that I was justly under the wrath of God. And as the speaker goes into his altar call, and I don't move, and as he goes on, he says, turn to your friend next to you and ask them if they need to come forward today and give their life to Jesus. And some of you have heard me tell this story before, but my buddy to my left turns to his friend on his left, and my buddy to my right turns on his friend on his right, and I'm just sitting there like, I think I need to give my life to Jesus, but... I'm too scared. Um, And then I felt this tap on my shoulder from a friend behind me. And we went forward to pray. But more importantly, afterward, as I spoke to my youth pastor, he says, Tyler, you went forward at this event. You went forward at this thing in Nashville. You know you really only have to give your life to Christ once. Because when you do, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. And as I always say, that sounded weird to me. But I felt weird, so I figured that that was what was happening. (laughs) And that was it for me. That was when the gospel came to me, not only in word, but in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. I went home and everything was changed. There was a hunger for God's word. There was a real desire for holiness. I wasn't perfect, far, far from it. I had much sin to put to death and still do, but the compass of my life was now oriented to Jesus. Church, whether God saved you in a clear moment or whether you just look back on some period of your life not knowing when exactly it happened, whether it was clear and outwardly emotional or whether it was an internal and almost imperceptible thing, God works in all kinds of ways. However it is that he worked in your life, marvel that the gospel came to you in the power of the Spirit. Going on, we see that the Christian is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is what my youth pastor was referring to on that day in the parking lot. So we have believing, hearing, and then we have sealing. This and that both occur at the same time. Now, we think of the word sealed, and we might think of being preserved, kept safe. And the Christian is preserved and kept safe, but that's not the sense meant here by sealed. Seal here is used in the sense of to put a mark on or to brand, to place a seal on. The Christian bears the seal marking you out as belonging to God. This seal is the brand whereby God says, that one is mine. 
We see the word come back to us in chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In a similar passage in 2 Corinthians 1, 21, we read, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our heart as a guarantee. We can see something of this in Ezekiel 9 when, uh, when God says to put a mark on someone to set the remnant apart to escape destruction. So the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And then finally, we do see in Revelation, it also speaks to this. In Revelation 7, John writes of sealing the servant of God on their foreheads. And then in Revelation 13 and 14, people either bear the mark of the beast or the believers have Christ's name on their forehead because they've been sealed or marked as belonging to God. And the believer gets this seal by placing their faith in Christ. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It marks you off. It brands you as belonging to him. Church, as I study this week and I think about sealed, one of the things I wondered is, in our age of like self-autonomy, of like anti-authority, do we bristle at the thought of belonging to God? Or is that beautiful? As we rehearsed last week from the Heidelberg Catechism, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. All that we have is his. Our time is his. Our job is his. Our bodies are his. Our money is his. Our family is his. We belong to Jesus. That's what it means to confess him as Lord, is that he's the boss, he's the ruler, he's the king. We put off what he says to put off. We put on what he says to put on. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. We cultivate the deeds of the spirit. Can I, can I be honest about something that drives me crazy? Perhaps it's a, such a strong reaction because I feel this in my own flesh, but it drives me crazy to have conversations with Christians about something that is clear in Scripture and then hear self-autonomy, self-expression, self-whatever, override the clear commands of Jesus. Take as one example, personal conflict. Jesus is clear. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. (coughs) Then too many times, though, when someone's been offended, I'll ask, have you spoken to them about this? No, I don't think that would go well. I feel like I'm not the kind of person who, I, I didn't want to 
I, 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 self, self, self. And in my flesh, I really just want to yell. It doesn't matter what you think, how you feel, what kind of person you are, what you want. Act like a Christian. Do what Jesus says. We don't get to decide what we do next. We seeded making that decision when we submitted to Jesus. He owns us. He gets to decide that. And if he's spoken to the matter clearly, then we just get to obey. Our thoughts, our feelings, our personalities, our desires are not the final arbiters of truth for us. That's what we gave up when we submitted to Christ. If you want to go your own way, be your own man, then do so at your own peril. But if that's what you want to do and that's who you want to listen to, don't pretend like you're following Jesus. You can listen to self or you can listen to Jesus. You can't have it both ways. And church, I do realize that often those conversations are about finding the courage to do the difficult thing. I do realize that sometimes the right thing is not always clear. But on matters that are clear, can we just resolve to be men and women of conviction who don't waffle on whether we are going to obey our Lord? As people who are not our own, let's not pretend like we have options if Jesus has spoken to it. So let us not bristle at being owned by him, rather let us see it as beautiful. I love, I love how this is expressed in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. There, Paul's just finished up that section where he says, put off, and he lists out these sins of the flesh, and he, t- and he says what the believer is to put on, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's beautiful to be marked by him because you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Again from the Heidelberg, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You were sealed, and the seal is himself, God, the Holy Spirit. Going on, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. If you have the ESV and you look down in the footnote, you see as an alternate translation, down payment. Either is fine. Here's the sense of it. In the New Testament time, a business transaction would be conducted uh, very similar to how many are today. You give a down payment or guarantee as a way of committing to the full agreement. So when I was selling pool renovations, we would have a draw schedule or payment terms, and usually it was something like 50% due on signing, that's the down payment, and then 50% due on completion of the work, that's the rest of it to come. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer is the down payment guaranteeing the full inheritance to come. So if you remember the adoption language from verse 5 that we covered a few weeks ago, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. 
there we noted that that was an adoption with a full share of the inheritance as a full heir. Then down in verse 11, we saw again that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Here in verse 13, we see that we already receive a portion of that glorious inheritance. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. But there, and then there's also, we see here, that there's a not yet, there's a portion yet to come. And then even going on in our passage next week, Paul prays that the church would be able to see clearly what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. But now, already, if you're in Christ, you already have the down payment of God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. What a glorious down payment that is. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have all the gifts of regeneration. We are born again of the Spirit, John 3. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1. As Jonathan Edwards says on this, he says, The scriptures represent the Holy Spirit not only as moving and occasionally influencing the saints, but as dwelling in them as his temple, his proper abode, an everlasting dwelling place. And he is represented as being there so united to the faculties of the soul that he becomes there a principle or spring of new nature and life. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have Christ's presence with us. As he promised in the Great Commission, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And in John 14, he is the helper who will be with you forever. Because of the Holy Spirit, we have conviction of sin. He will convict the world concerning sin. We have power over sin. It is by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. Because of the indwelling of the Spirit, we grow in Christ-like virtue. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit works this godly character in the life of the believer Because of the indwelling of the Spirit, we have guidance toward truth. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God to us. Without the Holy Spirit, they would remain just words on the page. As John Owen noted, he that would utterly separate the Spirit from from the Word had as good burn his Bible. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Because of the indwelling of the Spirit, we have comfort. He is the comforter. And because of the indwelling of the Spirit, we are empowered for the mission but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Or Luke 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's just the down payment. All of that is just the down payment. 
Church, if you're in Christ, then you have received the very Spirit of God dwelling in you. What an amazing and precious gift. Is the fruit of that evident in your life? When I describe the Spirit's ministry, does that sound like your life? Friend, if that sounds foreign to you, then I think it would be a good use of your Sunday to quiet yourself before him and find out why that is. Have you ever truly been made new? If no, then fall on your face before him, asking him to do that work in your life. There's nothing more pressing for you. Or have you so hardened your heart that the Spirit's voice in your life is but a faint whisper? Come before him today and repent. Take time to do the hard work of letting him search your heart, rooting out all of its sickness. But be encouraged. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Though your faith be feeble, he can fan it into flames again. For the rest of us who hear the ministry of the Spirit and we cling to that as a precious gift, take heart and trust that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let us walk by the Spirit in practice, making every effort to be controlled by him in all that we do. Last until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All of these precious blessings of the Spirit are only the down payment of the riches of his glorious inheritance. They are the now, the already, but there's a not yet coming to our salvation. And this is the Christian's great future hope. Paul says that all of creation itself is looking forward to that future day. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Or elsewhere, he tells the Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death 
is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God living in you now is but a down payment, a guarantee of the glorious future day when all will be made right. And as a guarantee, then if you have received the Spirit, then you can bank on that future inheritance as sure as any promise of God. On that day, we will experience what John Murray says is a cosmos delivered from all the consequences of sin. Christian, let that hope keep you pressing onward. In closing, let me give you four points of brief points of application that you can work out further in your base groups or in conversation this week. Number one, take a moment to recall your own conversion. Be ever grateful that he changed your life. Number two, embrace again life in the spirit. Resolve again anew, afresh, to pursue that with all your might. Number three, avail yourself of his presence. You have the spirit in you. Commune with him. Fourth, rest in that future promise. Know this, church, that your future is bright. Whatever storms we walk through now will one day be over. Whatever sin we wrestle with now will one day be gone. Whatever sufferings we face now, even if we carry them the rest of our lives, will one day be gone forever on that day when you acquire full possession of your inheritance as a full heir with Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you are so gracious to us. Lord, as we have spent time these weeks learning much of how you've moved to save us, Lord, I pray that you would use that to fill us with gratitude. Lord, I pray that you would use that to call back to you in close communion those that wander. Lord, I pray that you would use that to put a, put a steel in our bones. Lord, I pray that you would stir up in us a desire to see you continue doing that work and to see, to see you take that gospel to others in the area. Father, whatever it is that you want to do in our lives this morning from, from your word, Lord, I pray that we would go from here and be attentive to you in that. Lord, I pray that we would go from here convicted, comforted, encouraged, whatever it is, Lord, in each of our individual lives. Lord, thank you again for your word as you reveal yourself to us. Pray in Jesus' name.